0: 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to read one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm reading verse 14. Paul said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. But thanks be unto God who always leads us to triumph in Christ. The human spirit, the unregenerated, unredeemed human spirit has a remarkable ability to withstand great moments of crisis. We've all have heard and we perhaps know of some people who has come through tremendous adversities in life. We wonder how in the world did they ever do that? We couldn't imagine ourselves being able to handle such a difficulty as they had. Other people have overcome incredible odds to win through, and some in the face of adversity has shown true human grit. Now, if the human spirit that has not got the Holy Spirit residing within, if it can do that, and it can, how much more can the human redeemed spirit how much more can the Spirit with the Holy Spirit residing do much more? Amen. If natural man can excel, how much more the spiritual man? If the old man has strengths, how much more the new man that's created in Christ Jesus? Now, as a believer, you were recreated in Christ to live in victory, not defeat. Yes. Now, there's times we feel a defeat. And there's times we have felt defeated and times we have been defeated, but we don't live there. We don't stay there That's right. because God has designed us to live in victory. Amen. You're designed to win, not to lose. You're designed to be above, not beneath. You're designed to be an overcomer, not to be continually overcome. Paul, Philippians 4.13 said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good times, bad times, end times, out times, up times, down times, in season, out of season. He says, I have done all of that, but it was through Christ who strengthens me. And whenever you read it, the testimony of Paul and all that he faced in his ministry, it's incredible what he went through. But yet he says, I was doing that with the strength of Christ in me. Romans eight thirty seven. Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Jesus in 10, 19 said, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Isaiah 54 and 17. uh, Isaiah said that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. It's a lovely scripture. I like it. Verse 17 of Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises up against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Amen. Now in Second Chronicles 32, it speaks of King Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah at this point in his life was in a very good place before God. He had instituted reforms throughout the whole land, spiritual reforms. He had pulled down all the, all the idols and all the groves and the pillars that was put up to worship other gods. He pulled them all down throughout the land. The temple had lain idled for years and it was full of rubbish and he got them to sweep it out and to clean it. And he instituted the word of God again and he even brought back the feast of the Passover again which had been off the table for years. And he did all of that and brought the nation back to God. And God was pleased and God prospered him for that. But in spite of that, his enemy, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes against Hezekiah and surrounds the city. And he is outnumbered tremendously by the armies of Assyria who had great armies. But it didn't perturb him. He was in a good place with God. And here's what he said to his people in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7 and 8. Hezekiah said of Sennacherib the Assyrian, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. Now notice he didn't say there are more of us than he has, because that wouldn't have been true. But he says there's more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Amen. And so he had confidence and he had Isaiah the prophet as his aide and his helper at that time. So he had confidence in his God that God would fight the battle. And Let me this morning, just the time that we have, uh, just to point out some things, to share some things that will guarantee us the victory in our Christian life. First of all, our faith, our faith. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're born of God today, if you're saved, born of God, then you can overcome the world. The world's not supposed to overcome you. You're supposed to overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice that John brings down faith right to the very level of just believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Now not just intellectually or historically, but spiritually, truly believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And because we believe that, we serve him and we love him. And because of that, we have faith. He has given us faith to fight the battles of life. Ephesians 2 and 8, we're saved through faith. Saved by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. We're justified by faith, Romans 5 and 1. We're made righteous by faith, Philippians 3 and 9. Yes. Hebrews 11 and 6 We please God by faith. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews said it's impossible to please God except by faith. The only way you please God is by faith, by trusting Him, believing in Him, reaching out to Him. If we're going to get anything from heaven, it's going to be by faith, reaching by faith. We receive wisdom by faith, James 1, 5 and 6. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally, but don't let him waver, don't doubt Ask God and he'll give you wisdom. You know, it sounds a simple thing, doesn't it? But how many times have we needed the wisdom of God and the last thing we did was pray? We thought, well, we'll figure it out. Instead of saying, God will give us wisdom. He will show us what we need to do and he gives us the wisdom. If we ask him believing in faith, Romans 12 and 3, God has given to each of us the measure of faith. Every single believer has got the measure of faith. Now there's no question that some people's faith because they've exercised it greatly has greater faith. But even if your faith is just the size of a mustard seed, Jesus said, it can do great things. It's what we do with the faith. Not sometimes even the amount we have. It's what we do with what we have. It's trusting and believing in the Lord. That's why Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. In Hebrews 11, the great uh, roll call of faith chapter. In verse 4 it says, By faith Abel. And then verse 6, verse verse 5. By faith Enoch. Verse 7. By faith Noah. And then by faith Abraham. By faith Sarah. By faith Isaac. By faith Jacob. By faith Joseph. By faith Moses. By faith, by faith, by faith. The roll call of faith. There's something. These were just ordinary men and women. Just ordinary people. But at some point, they used the faith that God gave them. And they put their trust wholly and completely in the Lord God. And because of that, God did wonderful things with them and through them. And they're mentioned here in their old call of faith. And so God has given us faith to help us to win and be victorious in this life. Second thing he's given us is his word. Joshua 1 and 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The only time success is mentioned in scripture is right here and it's attached to the word of God. That should be a lesson for us, shouldn't it? And this book of the law shall not depart from underneath your arm from the top of your table at the side of your bed and all those will be good places for the word of God to be but no, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth see if it's in your heart if you've been meditating on it and it's in your heart it'll come through your mouth it'll it'll come up it'll it'll just come through your mouth that's the way that it works in fact even our salvation if we believe Romans 10 if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If we believe that, really believe that in our heart, and then we confess it with our mouth, Paul says, we shall be saved. But if we truly believe in our heart, then we confess with our mouth, then it brings salvation, brings deliverance, brings all kinds of good things. It's important that we understand about the word of God being spoken. Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you remember in in Matthew 8, the Roman centurion who came to Jesus and his servant was seriously ill. They wanted Jesus to heal him. Jesus says, I'll come, I'll come. And he says, no, no. He says, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. You just speak the word only. That's all you've got to do. Just speak the word. Because I'm a man under authority. And when I speak the word to my servants, he'll do this, he'll do that, he'll go here, he'll go there. All I gotta do is speak the word. They understand my authority. I'm a man under authority. So he recognized the authority of Jesus. And he says, All you've got to do to exercise your authority, just speak the word. And Jesus turned around to the crowd and he says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in all Israel. Here was a pagan Roman, but he understood the principle of authority and the word of command. And he could see Jesus, and he thought, he's got authority, he's got command, all he's got to do is just speak the word. And whenever he went home, that servant was healed at the very, very hour that that conversation took place. All Jesus had to do was speak the word. There's something about the word of God being spoken. It's a spiritual principle. In Genesis 1, eight times it said, and God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. Eight times, and it was. As soon as God said, let there be. And so there's a principle involved here. This is why in Hebrews 1 and 3, it says the Lord upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, I don't want to be pedantic about this, but you could say by the power of his word, and it would mean the same thing. But the writer differentiates, and he phrases it by the word of his power, letting us know that his power is released by his word. And you see that in Genesis. You saw it in the description he gave in the Roman centurion. His power is released by his word. And there's something about speaking the God's word. I don't mean parting it, but I mean believing it in our hearts and then speaking it with our mouth. Something happens in the heavenly realm. Right. Spiritually, something takes place whenever we do that. And so he has given us his word as something to help us to have victory in this life. Thirdly, he has given us mighty weapons. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 5, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Ha. Either we make our thoughts captive or our thoughts make us captive. Either we take a stronghold of them or they will make a stronghold in us. Let us consider for a moment this word stronghold. W.E. Vine, that great (coughs) scholar, he said the word means, implies fortifying, yet with the idea of holding safely. It means also castle or fortress. Now, a castle or a fortress is built to withstand invaders, isn't it? It's got great ramparts. It's great stout walls. It's thick. It's safe. It's somewhere where those inside can be safe. It's built for that. But in castles, and have you ever been to Carrickfergus Castle, you'll find it's got a prison or a dungeon to hold a prisoner, to keep a prisoner safe, to keep them imprisoned. And I think that what Paul is saying here, that the devil, by our thoughts, wants to keep us in a prison, in a a stronghold. You see, somebody said that a stronghold is a house built by thoughts. And we build things with our thoughts, don't we? We, we, we worry with our thoughts. We get fearful with our thoughts. We get anxious with our thoughts. We get scared with our thoughts. And if we keep doing that, we build a stronghold in our life. Now, a, a, a prison is hard to, it's hard to break out of. It's made so it's hard to break out of. But it's hard to break into as well. And if somebody's listening to the lies of the devil, the lies of the enemy, if they're listening to that and they're taking that on board and they built that stronghold, they built that prison in themselves, not only is it hard for them to get out of that, but it's hard for us to break into that to show them what will set them free because they don't accept it anymore. They don't believe it. They're so hooked up to that. They so believe the lie of the enemy that it's hard to break through and give them the truth that will set them free. Paul says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That means every contrary thought, every disobedient thought, every rebellious, defiant, unchristlike like thought, every prideful thought that exalts man above God, that exalts the will of man above the will of God, that exalts the knowledge of God above the knowledge of man above, the knowledge of God, all of those thoughts, imaginations, arguments have got to be pulled down. We're living in a generation where knowledge has become God to this world, where science has become God. And they have the gall to tell us that if you believe in science, you can't believe in God. If you believe in God, you can't believe in science. They have have put science and God at loggerheads and that's never the way it was ever supposed to be. God is not against science. Science is not really against God. It's man's ideas is against God. Actually, ironically, it was godly men who brought science into the world. It's godly men who believed in God, who wanted to know how God's word worked. That's what drove them to science, to find out how it worked. And they, they have the gall to say that if, you, if you're a scientist, you can't believe in God. Well, Wait a minute, you'd never even been a scientist if it hadn't been for godly men in the first place. He gave you that science to work with. So all those arguments, all those vain thoughts have got to be pulled down. How do we do that? We do that with the word of God. Jesus, in the temptations in the wilderness, do you remember how he was face to face with the evil one? I mean, it was right in your face. And what did he do? He just quoted the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. That's all they had to say. Because he knew the word of God. Ah. Ephesians chapter 6. And you know it well. In verse 10 it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The Apostle Paul was a great observer of life. And living in that Roman era, he saw many, many Roman soldiers. And sometimes he was handcuffed to some of them in jail. And he observed some of their dress. And he looks at their helmet. The Roman helmet was a beautiful thing. I mean, it was very well made. It was usually made of bronze. And, you know, it would come down and cover the jaw area as well. And at the back, it would have like a flap at the back over the neck. Do you ever see the security car of guys who's taking money into the bank under guard? They've got their helmet on. And if you look, there's a flap at the back of the neck in case somebody hits them a chop in the back of the neck. Well, the Roman soldiers had that too. And they would etch on it, different designs. They would etch it on, the, on the bronze. And then they would have a, a big plume from the front all the way to the back that might've been made of horsehair, might've been made of fellers that were dyed. And it was beautiful to look at, but it was very practical. No Roman soldier would ever have dreamt of going into battle without wearing his helmet. Because he knew those whom he was going against would have an ax or a sword. And if he had no helmet on, When you get hit with an axe in the head, well, it was lights out, it was game over, wasn't it? So they had to have that protection on their heads. And Paul looked at that, and he began to think about the helmet of salvation. The the head had to be protected. The mind has got to be protected. Because most of your battles as a Christian comes in your mind. The thought comes to you. You know, thoughts can be wonderful, but thoughts can be dangerous. Every thing that you do begins with a thought, just about everything. Every good deed you do began with a thought. Every evil deed begins with a thought. Every crime that's ever committed begins with a thought. Leslie Flynn, that great old preacher of old, he says every extra marital affair began with a fantasy. Begins with a thought. So we need to be careful about our thoughts, because that's where the enemy will want to fight and come in and attack our minds because he knows that a lot of our battles is going to be there. So this helmet of salvation was a wonderful thing. Paul said in Ephesians 4:23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul talks about the world. He says the God of this world Blinds the minds of those who believe not, blinds the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel shine on them and they become saved. And so he knows where to attack, he knows what to attack. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. A mind that's disciplined, a mind that's sound. So the helmet of salvation is a wonderful thing. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, Paul looked at the sword. Now, Roman soldiers had a couple of swords. They had one, which is a big, unwieldy type of sword. It was long and big, you had to use two hands, it was heavy. And that would be tiring for fighting a lot of the time. But they had another smaller sword. It was about 18, inch, 18 inches long, about two, two and a half inches broad, with a sharp point, and it was two edged, razor sharp on both edges. And that then was the most technological weapon of its day. That was it. And they used that because they were highly trained in that, and they could get in close to their opponent, and they could stab, and they could slash, and they could cut. And they could prod. I mean, it really was a lethal weapon. It was designed to kill. And it killed many. Because they were used to fighting with that sword. It was the most feared weapon that the Roman soldier had in his armory. And Paul said, that's like the word of God. It's like a two-edged sword. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it can even pierce asunder between soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. So you can see why Paul was looking at that and thinking it was like a two-edged sword that we can use against our enemy that comes against us. That's what Jesus did in the temptations, did he not? He used that two-edged sword. In Revelation 2.16, where Jesus is rebuking the churches there, when it comes to Pergamos, he said, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, it's his word, the sword of my mouth. Like a weapon. I'll use it against you, he said. I'll come and use my words against you like a sword. It'll cut you. It'll be lethal if I have to come and talk to you that way. In in Revelation uh, 19, there's a powerful image uh, of Christ here. Revelation 19 and verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dripped and dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him in white horses. Note this. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and the aviator says, a sharp two-edged sword that with it he should strike the nations. The two-edged sword is his word. It's all he needs to use. Just his word. And it's done. That's all he needs to fight with. And he's given us his word to fight our battles with too. Like a two-edged sword. So learn to handle the two-edged sword. Keep your nose in this book continually. I mean that. Keep your nose in this book. Soak it up. Get it inside of you. And then when the time comes, it'll come out of your mouth like a two-edged sword. And then the shield of faith he talks about. The shield of faith is made of wood. It's a wooden frame about four foot high by two foot broad. And it was covered over in, in long strips of leather And and the leather had to be oiled, because in the hot sunshine it would dry up and crack and be worthless. So they'd have to keep it oiled. But whenever they would go into battle, say against a rampart or or a a, you know a a tall edifice, and they would know their enemy was up there looking down, ready to shoot those fiery darts at them, combustible darts. So what did they do? They soaked those shields in water till they were dripping. So that whenever those arrows hit them, those arrows would be quenched. It would quench the fiery darts of their enemy. And Paul looks at faith as a shield to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And the enemy has got lots of fiery darts in his quiver. And he shoots them at us. And he's one for you, and he's one for you, and he's one for me, and he's one for him, and he's one for her. He shoots his fiery darts. And the only way to stop it from getting into the heart... That's where he wants to set fire in the heart is to get up the shield of faith. God has given you the shield of faith to stop those fiery darts. <laughs> now, it doesn't stop them firing the darts at you. But what it does stop is the effect of the attack of the fiery dart. I'll say that again. It doesn't stop those fiery darts coming against you. But what the shield of faith does, it stops the effect of the attack of the fiery dart coming against you shield of faith quenches those fiery darts Amen. and they fall at your feet. And so when Paul's looking at the soldier, he could see his instruments of war and he thought, ah, I know what that reminds me of. The helmet of salvation, that reminds me, the, the sword reminds me of the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. His shield, that's what it reminds me of. And then, lastly, The name of Jesus, the mighty name of Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about it. One day, every living creature, every human being that ever lived on earth, that's lived in heaven, that's living under the earth, that's in heaven or in hell, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. That's what that's saying. Every prime minister, every every queen, every king, every monarch, Every peasant in the field, it doesn't matter. Everyone that's ever lived, ever will live, will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. The devil himself and all his demons will bow the knee to Jesus and confess, you are the Lord. Even when Jesus walked about and even when those who were demon-possessed came near him, they acknowledged he was the Lord. One time he said, don't tell it, don't say it, don't say it, don't talk about it. They knew who he was, all right. They knew who Paul was, too. Remember the sons of Sceva tried to cast the demons out of somebody and they says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? The name of Jesus is very, very powerful indeed. I remember a number of years ago now, there used to be a little coffee shop in Darlingstown. It's actually, it's where the Church of Ireland is right now, St. Saviour's. used to be a coffee shop there. And then we had it for a charity shop for a while, but it's not down to build that beautiful church. And I remember another pastor and I, we, it was Monday morning at 10 o'clock and we had decided we meet, we were going to talk about the things of God, as we did often. So this was 10 o'clock on Monday morning. We were the first in and we sat right at the far side of the coffee shop. And... We were only talking maybe five minutes and the door opens and a guy comes in and it was very obvious he was drunk. And this is 10 o'clock on Monday morning. And he had the like builder's clue. It looks as if he just walked off a building site. But he was obviously drunk. He was staggering. And he got to the counter and he asked for a bottle of sauce. He wanted to buy a bottle of sauce so it just shows you where his mind was. But anyway, we were away in the far corner and my friend, I was sitting on the back to this man and my friend looked over my shoulder and he says, uh-uh. He's coming over. <laughs> He's coming over. So he came right over to us. And the first thing he said, now he didn't hear our voices. He had no idea who we were, what we were talking about. We were just dressed casually in jeans and so forth. The first thing he said, are you two preachers? <laughs> and I looked, I turned around and I looked up and I says, sir, do you know Jesus Christ? And immediately his face changed in such anger. Yeah. And he got his fist like that, and he put it right to my face, and I could smell the booze and the cigarettes of his fist. It was right at my face, at my nose. So what are you gonna say next? Whoever <laughs> blinks loses here, right? And I just kept looking, I said, do you know, sir, that Jesus Christ loves you? He died for you. And as soon as I said that, the fist just dropped, and he started to cry. He just, he just was a blubbering mess just started the bald cry and he kept backing backing away and backing away and backing away and back right out the door. But the name of Jesus had two effects on that man. First it was anger and then it was just tears. The name of Jesus is a powerful thing. And it's not a talisman, it's not abracadabra, it's not some superstitious thing. It's a powerful, powerful name that all hell recognizes 1 Peter three twenty two, 22, who has gone into heaven, and speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Glory to God. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, and we'll, we'll be finishing just in a moment. In, in Acts chapter 3, and I, I really like this here. Next chapter 3, it says, Now Peter, verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, with John Peter said, Look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat bagging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Silver and gold have I none, but I've got something else, and I'll give that to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That despised name, that one that religious authorities hate it with a passion that name. And he lifted him up and he got his miracle. I know it's a cliche, the old joke, he asked for arms and he got legs. And he did. Got brand new legs. Legs that worked. Now, it goes on to say here, verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we have made this man walk? the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and kill the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, Through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Glory to God. I tell you, he didn't miss him, did he? That name that they despised, the one that you crucified in his name has made this man whole. Oh boy. And then they got arrested. There's such a big scene. Then the religious authorities arrested them. And then in chapter four, and verse seven, and they, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, "By what power or by what name have ye done this?" Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged a good for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well?" Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Glory to God. But then, verse 17, here's what the, the authority said. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak no more no, to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And in verse 29. Now, Lord, Peter's praying here. Now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that by signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Glory to God. Such power there is in the name of Jesus. And I have to confess and say that in the Western world, Christians, us in the Western world, somehow we have missed the authority and the power that's in the simple name of Jesus. Somehow we have missed that, to be honest. But there is power in it. And the early church knew that power and they knew where it lay. And they weren't just invoking a kind of superstitious thing. They knew Jesus was working with them and all they had to do was call on his name and the work would be done and it was done. The first time Jesus sends his disciples out in Luke chapter 10 they come back they've seen tremendous miracles and they said Lord even the devils are subject unto us in your name and they're excited, thrilled that the devils were subject unto them in Jesus name. Remember what Jesus said to them though? He says, don't even rejoice in this, he says. But rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That's no big deal. The big deal is that your names are in the book of life. That's what you need to rejoice about. So he's getting their feet on the ground. Because he knew that they were going to have to go out without him one day. He was letting them see. But without him, when he would be away and go back to heaven, they would have to go out. And all they would have would be the authority of the name of Jesus. And they preached in that name and they taught in that name and they healed in that name and they cast devils out in that name. Everywhere they went, they proclaimed the name of Jesus. And so church today, are you a victim or are you a victor? You're not made to live in defeat. You're made to live in victory. And God has given us everything that we need to live a victorious Christian. He's saying amen.